Hey, everybody, it's Josh Barrow here with another episode of Serious Trouble for You. This week's free episode is about 30 minutes. We talk about Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and some stuff in the Georgia case. Uh, what we do not have in the free episode this week, what you'd have to go to SeriousTrouble.show and upgrade if you want to hear, is the discussion of the Washington, D.C. case before Judge Tanya Chutkin, her decision to set the trial for March of next year and what happens if Donald Trump doesn't show up for that. Can she throw him in jail? Uh, if he does that, and will she want to, even if she can? Anyway, if you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show. Otherwise, enjoy the free episode. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, hey, Ken, Josh. Yes? Ask the question. Is Michael Avenatti a good lawyer? No, he is not. <laughs> the Second Circuit says he is not. <laughs> we have some Michael Avenatti news. He's in prison. He's still in prison. He filed an appeal trying to... Well, actually, I don't think it would even have gotten him out of prison because this was just one of his four uh, federal prosecutions that he faced, the one about extorting the Nike Corporation. Anyway, uh, he did not impress the Second Circuit with his appeal. We will talk about that later in the show. Uh, I guess maybe after the paywall. <laughs> uh, Michael Avenatti is kind of like a, he, he's like a palate cleanser course. He's not, you know, one of the, the key figures here anymore, given that he's going to be residing in a federal institution for a long time. Anyway, we have some news coming up about him. Don't miss it. It's going to be entertaining. But let's start with another good lawyer, Ken. Rudy Giuliani. He's a good lawyer, right? He like, he sent the mob <laughs> to prison back in the 80s. Well, Josh, Rudy Giuliani has descended from the scourge of the five families, the <laughs> Rico bringer to the mob of New York, America's mayor, to someone whose excessive drinking is now being investigated by a special counsel to determine whether it is so extreme it prevents him from supplying an effective defense of advice of counsel to the former president. Now, there's a series of sentences you don't expect to hear. No, this is this is interesting to me. So this was a story in the Daily Beast about how Jack Smith has been asking various people about Rudy Giuliani's drinking. Th these are people who were sort of around the, the Trump operation uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, the people coming up with the cockamamie ideas about trying to overturn it, asking questions about how drunk he appeared to be, also asking questions about whether the then president, Donald Trump, was making comments about Rudy seeming to be drunk, complaining about him being drunk, that sort of thing. And I guess the whole idea here is to argue that, you know, when if Donald Trump comes into this criminal case and says, I relied on the advice of counsel, my lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, told me all this stuff was kosher and that I could do it. If you can show not only that Rudy was drunk, but that Donald Trump knew he was drunk, was bitching about how he was drunk, because um, Donald Trump famously doesn't drink. He sort of looks down on people who are uh, alcoholics. So anyway, if you can show that, then that undermines the idea that in good faith, Donald Trump was simply relying on his lawyer's advice. Josh, I, I think it's really two reasons they're looking into it, not counting for amusement value. <laughs> um, I think they're looking into it because some of the narratives that Donald Trump is accused of pushing in the various cases may have originated with Rudy Giuliani. So like during some of the conversations with Georgia officials and others, he came up with some of these whoppers like, you know, 10,000 dead people voting in Georgia, things like that, that may have been sourced with Rudy Giuliani. And if you can establish that at the time Rudy was frequently drunk and Trump commented on it, then that sort of diminishes 
Trump's ability to credibly argue, oh, well, he said these things and I believe them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, as you said, to the extent Trump wants to use an advice of counsel defense, to the extent he's complaining his counsel was drunk, it comes off much less plausibly that he would have believed that advice or it was reasonable to believe that advice. What can we infer from the fact that the special counsel has been asking witnesses about this? I assume that they look at lots of potential different arguments and avenues uh, in this pretrial phase. Does that mean that this is something that they're going to raise at trial? Uh, I would say it depends on how good the evidence is. If you can get absolutely, you know, dream evidence that Trump was griping, uh, you know, here I am in the fight of my life and my attorney's drunk, uh, (laughs) then that's great. And you can really knock down the advice of counsel. Otherwise, I think they'll probably keep it in reserve and wait to deploy it to the extent Trump's team tries to blame Rudy Giuliani or say that Trump sincerely believed what he was being told by Rudy. In addition to being indicted in Georgia and being an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case brought against Trump in Washington, D.C. about the events leading up to January 6th, Giuliani has a number of litigation issues, and and one of them is a defamation case that has been brought against him by Ruby Freeman, who was an election worker in Georgia, and her daughter, who was also an election worker. They were at the center of these allegations. Rudy Giuliani was spinning these wild theories about how they had stolen the election for Joe Biden in the state of Georgia caused all sorts of trouble for them. And they've been suing one, they sued One American News Network, they sued certain executives at One American News Network, and they got settlements out of them. They've also been suing Rudy Giuliani, who is not settled. And we've been discussing how Giuliani uh, has not been very cooperative in discovery in this case, that he tried to write these weird stipulations to avoid having to go through discovery, saying, you know, I admit to these facts, but not really, and only for these purposes, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it looks like long-suffering federal judge Beryl Howell has had enough She's suffered so much. She issued an opinion here basically saying Giuliani's been yanking all of our chains here for too long. He is not uh, following his discovery obligations here. And therefore, I'm entering a default judgment saying that, you know, he is liable for the various things he's being sued for and that the only question left is the amount of the damages. This is what happened with Alex Jones, right, where he he didn't comply with various uh, aspects of the discovery process. And so when he was put on trial for defamation, it was only to figure out how much the damages were that he did to the the Sandy Hook families that were suing him. Similarly here, that's all Giuliani is going to get to contest in court? It's like that, but I would I think it's actually worse than Alex Jones, maybe not in terms of numbers, but in terms of the terms of this order from Judge Howell. Judge Howell here is clearly working some things out and working them out on Rudy Giuliani. Uh, giving a default against a party for not cooperating with discovery is sort of the the civil death penalty. So you have to show as a judge that other measures have been tried and haven't worked. You have to make a real record that, you know, he didn't just forget one thing and so I defaulted him. No, there was a long pattern of him not complying. And she sets it out in a very lengthy memorandum She shows how he's consistently defied discovery obligations, defied her orders, deliberately failed to preserve electronic evidence so it got deleted, hasn't paid almost $100,000 in sanctions, uh, has done this whole screwing around cute game where, well, maybe I don't have to answer discovery if I sort of stipulate uh, to some of it, but not really. And uh, in my mind, uh, most unforgivably, can't be taught 
how uh, to spell Nolo Contendere, no matter how many chances <laughs> she gives him. Uh, so she just blasts him in this order that says default is entered against you. You're still ordered to turn over all these documents. You're going to pay more sanctions for them having to file all these motions in addition to the sanctions you already owe. The jury is going to be told to draw an inference that you're screwing around and trying to hide facts about your net worth and your assets for purposes of punitive damages. It's, it's just a complete nightmare. It's hard to imagine being in a worse place as a civil defendant than just having had that order put against you. When we've talked previously about why Rudy Giuliani is not complying with his discovery obligations here, we've talked about the enormous legal costs that he is facing here from all of these suits. And we've seen in, in the press uh, uh, claims that, you know, he faces millions of dollars in legal costs. And that sounds plausible to you, right? Uh, yes, although I don't know that that really excuses the way he's acting. Here. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying it does excuse it. I'm just saying that our our theory of why he didn't comply was that basically that that he was running out of money. A lot of this stuff, you, to, in order to gather all the documents and that sort of thing, would have been expensive, and he was finding himself failing to do that. Well, I'm you, you not sure it even explains, not only does it not excuse it, I'm not sure it even explains okay. it. So I, from the sort of the string of refusals to comply that go beyond merely not processing documents, but not also doing other things he's obligated to do, not answering things, not preserving evidence, you get the strong impression, and, and it's clear Judge Howell thinks this, that he's basically getting high on his own supply. He's buying his own PR that all this is illegitimate, and therefore he doesn't have to, um, he doesn't have to comply with it. So the problem is you can go out there and tell everyone that all these courts are corrupt and illegitimate, can't get a fair trial, the process is irrelevant, but you can't can't act that way in front of a federal judge, or they will come down on you like the wrath of God. And Rudy, in this case, has really acted like he is, the court is not anything he's bound to respect. And you just can't act that way. And he's found out why. Which is not broadly the way Donald Trump has been behaving in his suits, right? Uh, not as blatantly. Uh, generally, ironically, his attorneys seem to have a better hold on him. Maybe he also has better assets. But Rudy can't even, you know, Rudy cannot plausibly fail to cooperate. He can't do it in a way that gives him a plausible excuse. <laughs> He's just doing it in a very bumbling Rudy, suspected of being too drunk to give uh, an advice of counsel defense sort of way. I was also very amused that one of the things that the judge demands from Giuliani in this order, uh, she wants further financial information uh, to be given to the plaintiffs because they're going to need that in order to figure out what sort of damages he can he, he might reasonably be expected to pay. Um, and one of the bits of information that she demands is information about his podcast, audience statistics, revenue statistics. I hadn't realized that Rudy Giuliani had a podcast. It's called Common Sense. Uh, it originates through Rumble, but you can get it through any of the major podcast platforms. I want to, you know, I, I want to encourage you to support a fellow podcaster if you're looking <laughs> for another, you know, coverage of all of these uh, legal difficulties from a different angle. Because he talks about this ongoing stuff on his podcast, by the way, Ken. Is that a good idea? If you're a criminal defendant and an undetected co-conspirator and you're being sued, should you have a podcast about this stuff? I'm almost sure I already had podcasts on my list of things you couldn't do, Josh. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to check. Yes. Uh, Rudy is a mouth. He's always been one. And that request from the judge about the podcast has two purposes. One is probably to help 
uncover his assets. But the other is to determine the extent of damages and punitive damages based on how wide the reach of these crazy things he's been saying are. But this this opinion, it's a it's a it's fun. Uh, she spends a whole page just ripping Rudy for what she says, donning a cloak of victimization um, <laughs> and, and says more or less that, you know, uh, you might be able to game the election, but you can't game the discovery process. Yeah, I'm one more thing on the podcast. I'm skeptical of the idea that there's a lot of financial value coming out of that podcast. For the, for people who aren't in the industry, the podcast ad market is in really bad shape right now. Uh, there's a reason that we do this podcast as a listener-supported subscription-based podcast. And by the way, if you uh, want to help us make this podcast for you uh, so that unlike Rudy Giuliani, we will have, find it financially viable to continue making this podcast for you every week, go to SeriousTrouble.show uh, for $6 a month or $60 a year. You can become a paying subscriber. You'll get every full episode. Uh, we did 50 episodes in our first year, Ken. Is that right? That's right. More yeah. than promise. And then if we end up uh, with a default judgment against us, then at least uh, there'll be a financial assets available for people to claim. So I think I think that's an important thing if you're in the audio <laughs> industry. <laughs> There's also merch. For, for $19.99, you can get a Rudy's Common Sense coffee cup. Or for $21.99, you can get three loom bracelets. They look like those bracelets that you make at summer camp, the sort of like the, the braided thing. Josh, I'm going to call you out on the assumption that's a coffee cup. I think that is a whiskey mug. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's some common sense there, Ken. The as you note, the the opinion from Judge Howell was was quite colorful and quite exasperated. And and one thing she says in there that I found interesting is she speculates that maybe the reason that he is not cooperating with Discovery here is that he thinks that not turning over materials will help him in certain other proceedings that he's involved in, whether those are civil or criminal proceedings. She says, perhaps he's made the calculation that his overall litigation risks are minimized by not complying with his discovery obligations in this case. Whatever the reason, obligations are case-specific, and withholding required discovery in this case has consequences. I'm interested, would that even work if that's his idea, that he doesn't want to turn over documents because he doesn't want prosecutors to see them or he doesn't want someone else who's suing him civilly to see them, I assume if the federal government wants to know what was in Rudy Giuliani's emails, which has been an, an issue of difficulty here in this civil case, getting you know full accounting of emails that he sent back and forth about the matters that he's being sued over, I assume if prosecutors want that, they've already gotten it from Google or whoever, right? Right. They, they, they've been very aggressive with grand jury subpoenas to various entities, as we saw with that subpoena to Twitter for uh, Trump's uh, records. So I'm sure they have it. He, he's probably worried about a couple of things, one being documents going to other potential plaintiffs, of which there are plenty. Yes. And second, answering questions that will incriminate him. Uh, generally, you can't refuse to turn over documents based on the Fifth Amendment, with very narrow exceptions not relevant here. But uh, you can't refuse to answer interrogatories and things like that uh, on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. But once you do, that has dramatic consequences that start approaching being as bad as default. Let's talk about what's been going on in Georgia. Again, uh, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, brought this RICO prosecution with 19 defendants. Several of the defendants have arguments about why their case should be removed from state court into federal court. And they filed these notices of removal saying to the, to the federal court, try me here. Um, and that process is ongoing. And the, the strength of the arguments varies from defendant to defendant. I thought, and we got many listeners who wrote in being very surprised by this, I thought it was really strange that Mark Meadows went and actually testified for several hours 
hours um, about his arguments for why his case belongs in federal court. It's, I mean, it, it's remarkable if you're going to be a criminal defendant in this case, you probably don't want to testify in the case. It's remarkable to go and testify in this hearing, right? It is. Uh, that's kind of going all in on your federal court strategy and your appeal to uh, you know, federal immunity or defenses like that. Normally, you would never let yourself not only testify, but be subjected to cross-examination by the prosecutor going after you about the core events that form the basis for the prosecutor's case. That's just kind of suicidal. But here, uh, Meadows thinks probably that it, it the process is going to be the punishment and that if he has to go to trial with 18 other complete lunatics in Georgia for however many months, he's destroyed no matter what the outcome. So he seems to be putting it all on getting into federal court. So Josh, remember we talked about the removal statute that says that a federal officer can remove a state prosecution to federal court and there are three things they have to show, that they were a federal officer, that the thing they're being prosecuted for was for or relating to an act under the color of their office, uh, and they have to show they have a colorable, meaning plausible, federal defense. So he has the burden of showing those things as the person seeking removal. So that's what this hearing is for. He got to testify to do that. And then Fannie Willis put on some of her star witnesses to talk about how he was sort of in on a bunch of things like the crazy phone call to uh, the Secretary of State and things like that. What does it mean to act under the color of an office? Because I've, I've seen this argument, including advanced by Fannie Willis's office, that the Hatch Act, which is the federal law that makes it illegal for federal employees to engage in certain political activities, that the Hatch Act prevented these various federal employees from engaging in political activity. And so if they were engaged in political activity, that can't have been activity under color of their office. And I, I thought that was a really strange argument because I thought that you don't have to be acting validly in order to be acting under color of the office, right? Isn't it just that you are purporting to use powers that, that were allocated to you? Right. So under color of your office is something you see a lot in civil rights cases under 1983, charging state actors with doing bad things. And you have to show that they were acting under the color of their office. And you might say it's under the apparent authority they have as a result of their federal office or invoking that authority or somehow involving it. Uh, so uh, it's a fairly lenient standard. And I think the Hatch Act argument is intended to suggest there's no plausible way that these political activities could be under color of office. Now, the Hatch Act doesn't even apply to President Trump. Right. So I don't know if it's the best argument, but it's a argument. We got an important update on this, Josh, when uh, the judge, the federal judge who's hearing this, who's very careful, being very methodical, issued an order asking the parties to brief a question. That question is, what if I find that only one of the overt acts in this indictment that Mark Meadows is accused of doing was under the color of office? Only one, but not the rest. What happens then? And so that kind of sets everyone a buzz because on the one hand, Fonnie Willis is probably thinking, you know, oh, crap, he thinks at least part of it was under color of office. Mark Meadows is saying, oh, crap, he may think most of it is not under the color of office. And it's not perfectly clear what happens there. So we don't know, for instance, and people have been asking me this, well, could 
Fonnie Willis just dismiss that overt act or get a superseding indictment leaving it out. That's not clear to me because it would still be part of the case. She'd still have indicated that's an important piece of evidence that's part of the prosecution. So a lot of this stuff for this removal is not well legally established. It's kind of uncharted territory. And uh, this judge is having to blaze new trails to, to get through it. I was going to ask you whether they indeed do need to show that all the acts are under color of the office or if it's good enough that only one of the acts be under color of the office. And it sounds like you're saying not only that you don't know the answer to that, but that the answer to that is unknown because the area of the laws is just not well developed. Well, I would say I don't see any case that answers that question. But logically, if part of the prosecution is removable, it would seem like the whole thing is. Uh, if some component of it is subject to protection, um, then, of course, you get to the question of whether, okay, you've shown that it's under color of office, but do you have a federal defense to it? And you could still fail on that level. So we really don't know how this judge is going to come out, but I would say the judge, by asking this, is showing that it's at least the judge finds it at least plausible that some of what Meadows is accused of doing is under the color of his office of chief of staff. I'm I'm just trying to think through the the starting from the policy rationale of why we allow these cases to be removed to federal court, which I sort of understand to be about there's concern about whether states will interfere with the operations of the federal government by using prosecutions in local courts, or that federal uh, employees might might not get a fair hearing in those courts. And when when we're trying them about their their actions in the course of their job, we want that in federal court. And I'm trying to think if that's why you have the law, whether you would want it to encompass a situation where only some of the acts were under the color of the office. Like, I mean, suppose you had a conspiracy to enrich some outside organization that a uh, that a politician was uh, affiliated with and that he voted for certain pieces of legislation as part of that conspiracy. And he also robbed a bank and you were charging that. Would you want to allow the case to be removed for that? I, I can't. I, it's sort of not obvious to me what policymakers would have intended in the first place. Well, most of the cases that comment on the statute say that the original behind the idea behind it is kind of murky, and it's not clear what the basis for it is. I would say that because the local prosecutor is able to shape their prosecution, the feds have an interest in getting them to shape it in a way that does not encompass things that are under color of federal law, things that the person is doing in their federal role, and such that they only do that, they only include that if it's necessary to the case. Remember, the thing I criticized about the Fonnie Willis-Rico indictment was that it was sort of bloated and and uh, gratuitous, that it had a lot of additional facts that seemed to sort of deliberately call out things that, that could have First Amendment defenses or politics defenses or things like that, unnecessarily picking fights that she didn't really need to pick. And this may be a case of that blowing back a little bit, that she didn't need all of those overt acts. And maybe she could have been more, a little more selective about which ones were or weren't plausibly part of his job. There's also some interesting speedy trial issues here where you know the this case is likely to take years to go to trial um, because of the inherently complicated nature of a, of a RICO prosecution with 19 defendants. And then you have some of the defendants who seem eager to delay the prosecution. Uh, Donald Trump in general wants to delay these processes. But you also have uh, a couple of defendants who are, who are looking to go to trial quickly. One is Ken, is it Ken Cheese, Chesbro? It's Chesbro, uh, Chesbro? not Cheesebro. 
Cheese, okay. Uh, so okay, don't say okay. cheese bro anyone. It's okay. Mr. Chesbro. Chesbro. Uh, so he has filed a he filed a motion for a speedy trial, and the judge said, "Sure, we'll we'll do your trial in October, uh, which is really soon." And Sidney Powell also made a request. I don't believe that's been ruled on yet at the time that we're taping. And one aspect of that is Fonnie Willis has said she wants to try all 19 of the defendants together. Presumably, if if Ken Chesbro gets a, a speedy trial and the others have to wait, then you can't try them all together. Right. So the, the judge who granted the speedy trial motion um, said basically for now it's just this gentleman, the cheese bro. And this made Fonnie Willis mad because she <laughs> wants them all to be together. So the DAs uh, this week filed a somewhat comic, classic DA culture motion for clarification, which is what the <laughs> DAs do when they're whining that the judge has done something they don't like and forgot that you're only supposed to give the DAs what they want. But judge, you didn't go through the factors to decide whether or not to sever him. But judge, that type of thing in, in this motion, basically saying she wants them all to be tried together, and he has to fulfill certain tests and consider certain factors. The judge is going to slap her down hard on that because this is the sort of thing the judge has absolute control over, wide discretion as to whether or not to sever out defendants for this type of reason. Now, in fact, um, Sidney Powell uh, has just filed a motion to sever her case from all the other defendants, which is a extremely sensible thing to do. And uh, it makes all the arguments you would make in a motion to sever. Basically, I'm going to have to sit here for an entire trial that involves 18 other people. And a jury is not just going to hear about what I did, but necessarily going to hear what these 18 other people did and how they're going to, you know, just focus on me and what I did. And that's unfair. And of course, that's exactly why Funny Willis charges it this way, so that you and the whole point of the RICO statute is sort of tar everybody with the same big brush. <laughs> I um I was amused by certain aspects of her filing. One is she has some very pompous descriptions of of what a great attorney she is. Uh, to you know that she's you know she's practiced for forty five years and always you know at the highest standards and she's all about fighting injustice. Blah blah blah. Um, is that is that sort of boilerplate? She is at the highest level of the bar, um, I believe she said, although it did not specify the bar. It's a little pompous. Uh, yeah. And this is a classic Trump crony motion that leans all into the Trump theory that, you know, she was just contesting genuine issues. She talks about how she was instrumental in derailing the prosecution of uh of uh, General Flynn, and, um, mm -hmm. for listeners who remember that, all that type of thing. So very self-serving, very for the, the the base and for donations. But also, once you get past all that crap, making very sensible and points that any good defense lawyer would, that there's no way you can get a fair trial with 18 other idiots. And, uh, you know, you sh so I should get my own trial. I was also amused. She says, I don't know some of these people, some of them I've never even met. And she says that those that she does know, basically, that they don't really like each other very much, that she can't have had a conspiracy with them because they were constantly at odds, and that several of these people, including the president, had disavowed her as early as November 2020, and therefore, how could she possibly have been in a conspiracy with these people? And she also says repeatedly that, you know, she she was never an attorney for Trump, and she was never an attorney for the Trump campaign, which people might remember. It's, it's almost three years ago at this point. But this was a, a, a bit of a mystery 
at the time in November 2020, she goes to this press conference with Trump's lawyers and makes this presentation with them. And then several days later, the Trump campaign issues this statement saying Sidney Powell doesn't represent us. And Donald Trump himself made certain comments to that effect later. But it's not clear that that was true, or at least it's not clear that it had always been true. Isn't, I mean, those seem like fact questions for a trial, right? Exactly. In terms of like, was, you know, was she really his lawyer? And if she, even if she wasn't his lawyer, was she conspiring with him? Is this really the point where you can argue that? Uh, well, first of all, you can conspire criminally with people that you don't get along with. I mean, watch a fucking Scorsese movie. Um, <laughs> also, yeah, you, you're not going to get a judge to grant a motion by completely discarding the key factual underpinnings of the government's case. Mm -hmm. So th that's kind of oversell. That's more puffery, I think, than is substance here. Uh, so um, it doesn't matter whether she was the lawyer or not. It just matters what the government can prove that she agreed with other people to commit a crime. And uh, that's what it comes down to. You still note, though, that she has good arguments about the unfairness of having to go to trial with all of these people, that it will, in fact, you know, that it will, in fact, prejudice the trial for her. It sounds like you think the, the judge should grant this motion to sever. So, yes, I, I do. I, I think that the 19 defendant trial is ridiculously unwieldy and makes it very unlikely that any of the people are going to get what amounts to a fair trial, all the more so in a case like this where the conduct is so varied and in different places by different people doing different things. It's not like a single drug distribution conspiracy or something like that. It's, it's you know, kind of as uh, convoluted and disorganized as the whole Trump campaign was on this. Also, the, the 19 defendant trial is just completely impossible for the judge to run. It's a logistics nightmare. It's a nightmare getting jurors who can qualify for that long of a trial. Um, it's going to be, you're going to have all these competing uh, arguments where one person is going to say, I demand my speedy trial. And another is going to say, I can't possibly get ready by then. I'm being prejudiced. Uh, so it's very hard to reconcile all that. And the defendants know that and make use of that. So, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, it's perfectly reasonable here uh, to sever her and other people. Should there be 19 separate trials? I mean, it's not it's not uncommon to have, you know, one or two or three co-defendants, right? Not at all. And often in a situation like this, you might see the um, judge break it down thematically. So, like, we're going to have a trial of this group of people who engaged in this part of the conspiracy and did this segment of it. And that's one way to divide it. But then does that mean that some people could end up as defendants in more than one of those trials if they were relevant to more than one of those groupings? It seems like Donald Trump is a nexus to all of these things, for example. No, you'd probably wind up just charging them in one and generally doesn't make a, a big difference for sentencing. So, okay. Let's talk about the proceedings in Washington, D.C. before Judge Tanya Chutkin. Uh, she had a hearing to discuss a trial date. Again, this is the case about the events leading up to January 6th, federal case. That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. If you want to hear about the proceedings in Washington, D.C., the March 4 of 2024 trial date that's been set, whether that's actually likely to happen, uh, and what happens if Donald Trump decides he doesn't want to show up for his own criminal trial like he's done for so many of his civil trials. If you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can upgrade for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll get every full episode uh, of Serious Trouble that comes out. Uh, we put out actually precisely 50 episodes in our first year. Uh, so again, 
uh, if you, if you want to hear that, go to serioustrouble.show, uh, an upgrade, and uh, we hope to see you over there. <laughs>